This is Steve Lawson, and I'm so grateful that you've joined us for this episode of From the Pulpit. I've been preaching for over the last 50 years, and I have committed the majority of my life, really, to preaching the Word of God, and I'm so excited to be able to share with you uh, the sermon that is on this podcast. Uh, By way of background, I'm the professor of preaching at the Master's Seminary. I teach men to preach. I'm over the Doctor of Ministry program on expository preaching. And I preach on a regular basis at Trinity Bible Church of of Dallas. This podcast will serve to share many of those sermons and hopefully strengthen your walk with the Lord or perhaps bring you to faith in Christ for the very first time. So join me now on this episode of From the Pulpit. Well, I'll tell you, um, I actually grew up in Fort Worth, Texas as a young boy, elementary school And I actually was present for the very first Dallas Cowboys football game in the Cotton Bowl. And I think it was 1960. And I had season tickets, and I went to all the Cowboy games as a young boy. My father would drive me over from Fort Worth. And so it was just in my my blood. And I was a finance major in college, started out in accounting, and my my dad kind of influenced me in that direction. He said, after you graduate, you could could get a job with the Cowboys. I was thinking quarterback, (laughs) for obvious reasons. Um, And so a million years ago, I, I went to Dallas Seminary, and to put myself through seminary, I had to come up with a way to pay for tuition and housing and and all of that. So I created, the only thing I could think of, I created a magazine that I wrote with the Dallas Cowboys. And it was called Gospel Gridiron. And um, I met with Tom Landry weekly, Roger Staubach, and Mike Dicka, and so many of of the Cowboys. And that's how I put myself through seminary, was producing this magazine that I sold subscriptions to and advertisement in, et cetera. And so I just loved the Cowboys. I went to practice with them um, many times. In fact, Tom Landry told me, he said, I really think this is what you're supposed to do with your life, that, that you need to continue to, to have this Christian football magazine um, that you produce. And um, I was on the sidelines with the Cowboys um, many, many times. So that, that's just kind of um, my background. And I, re- I also produced one f- with the da- Dallas, uh, excuse me, Dallas, the Texas Rangers. Um, and then the Dallas Mavericks came to Dallas and they contacted me and they wanted me to do their magazine. And then the Byron Nelson golf tournament, they wanted me to do that. And then 7-Eleven took it and they wanted me to expand to Houston and all these other markets. And it was a whole lot more fun than going to Hebrew class, I'll tell you. (laughs) A whole lot more fun. And um, the only thing that could have extricated me out of this miry pit as I was just becoming so absorbed while I'm in seminary is I came to the realization of the sovereignty of God in salvation. 
and then the sovereignty of God in providence. And I, it, it so jolted me, and it so shook me to the very core of my being that I just walked away from it all. I did not know you could even sell a business. And I just walked away from it, and like overnight, and moved from the back row of seminary to right in the middle of the front row of seminary. And if God is sovereign, which He is, and if God has chosen me from before the foundation of the world, and if God has foreordained good works for me to walk in, then I need to get back on track. And I need to do what God has called me to do. And that would be for someone else to write a sports magazine. That would be for someone else to pursue these other interests. But for me, why am I here on this earth? And the answer to that is he has put me on this earth to preach and teach his word and to write, to explain his word. And so it took something as big as the sovereignty of God to really overrule in my life as I was becoming deeply entrenched in something that I really liked and in something that I was kind of good at and in something that was extremely profitable. Um, But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so we must pursue eternal values and eternal priorities. And so anyway, I don't know why I told you that, but um, just playing off of the cowboys. So I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. And I've been asked to speak to you on living on the altar from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which is an assignment that I happily embrace. And I want, to, I want to begin by reading this passage. It's a text with which, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you're very familiar with this passage. But it's good for us to walk back through that which... We know, but we need to to hear it again. So Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In these verses, the Apostle Paul tells us that our Christian life must be lived as a holy and living sacrifice presented to God on the altar. This imagery, as you know, is drawn from the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant 
in which the priest was instructed that when he approaches God, he can never come empty-handed. As he approaches God and as he comes into the presence of God, he must have a sacrifice or he is unaccepted by God. And as he brings a sacrifice, it cannot be just any old sacrifice that he must bring a lamb or a goat or a bullock from the herd, but it could not be just any animal. It could not be one with a defect. It could not be a sacrifice of an animal that is blind or is lame or is sick or is diseased. That would be an insult to God. To bring God the leftovers? No. Malachi says, no, you bring your own fathers the leftovers. You bring your governors the leftovers that really are not as valuable to you. No, when you come to God, you are to bring a sacrifice that is the very best animal out of the flock that is costly and is valuable. That, that is the, the backdrop to this. And as Paul now transitions this to the Christian life, He is saying that you and I must be continually coming before God, not once, not twice, not many times in our Christian lives we are to be continually coming before God. And as we come, we are acting as a priest who is to bring a sacrifice to God. But the sacrifice that we are to present to God is not an animal, it's not incense, it is our very lives. But not just any life, it is to be a holy life. If it is to be acceptable to God and to present God a diseased and sinful life is totally, completely displeasing to God, and it is unacceptable. This pertains not to eternal salvation. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it does pertain to our sanctification and our Christian life. And we are not to be bringing God the leftovers. We are to bring to God that which is costly and valuable. And unlike in the Old Testament, it would be a sacrifice that has been slain and is dead, we are to bring God a living sacrifice. We are to live for God, not live for this world. Even as I shared about my my past before we looked into this passage, that was the the crisis for me. Am I going to live for God or am I going to live for myself? 
Am I going to live for God or am I going to live for fame and fortune in this world? And for us as Christians, we must live for God. And we live in a world in which there are all kinds of pressures and lures and temptations that are surrounding us and are pulling us in so many different directions. And we must come back to times that create a crisis in our soul where we have to make the difficult decision how I will live my life. That's what this passage is all about. So there's several things that I, to which I want to draw our attention. And the first heading is the connection. It's in the very first word, therefore. In the old adage, whenever you see a therefore, say, what is therefore? And I can't just speed past this word, therefore. It's one of the most powerful words in the vocabulary of the Apostle Paul, every great sermon has to have a therefore. Every great piece of writing must have a therefore. Your Christian life must have a therefore. And this therefore really serves as a connecting bridge linking what has preceded with what now will follow. Uh, This, therefore, joins all that Paul has taught in Romans 1 through 11. Chapters 1 through 11, now it is inseparably linked with what will follow in Romans 12 through 16, and on the basis of everything that Paul has taught about condemnation, justification, sanctification, glorification, election, and predestination, therefore, this is how you need to live. You see, the purpose of the doctrine in chapters 1 through 11, and it is Paul's magnum opus. This is the greatest book that has ever been written in the history of the world, the book of Romans. All of the doctrine that Paul has written, the goal is not information. The goal is transformation. The goal is regeneration. Knowledge must lead to something. Knowledge is never an end in itself. Knowledge must always lead to the transformation of of lives. Knowledge is never the destination. Knowledge is only the, the, the highway to take you to the destination. And the destination is that you and I would live a holy and godly life. Beliefs must produce behavior. And learning must affect living. And doctrine must always lead to duty. Indicatives must always lead to imperatives. You need a therefore in your Christian life. Based upon what you have been taught and sound doctrine, therefore, what in the world are you going to do with it? When I studied under R.C. Sproul years ago, 
the class that I had immediately before R.C. Sproul's class was a class on Christian worldview. And I remember the, the professor telling us, men, I'm going to come hear you preach one time. And I'm going to sit right here in the middle of the front row. And halfway through your sermon, I'm going to hold up a big sign. And there's only going to be two words on it. So what? So what does this have to do with my life? So what does this have to do with Monday morning? So what does this have to do with Friday night? So what does this have to do with going to work? So what does this have to do with my marriage? So what does this have to do with being a parent? That's what this word therefore is here for. It leads to the so what, the practical relevance of the doctrine that he has just taught in the first 11 chapters. It is the connecting link between information and the transformation of your life. The second thing I want you to see is the motivation. As we continue to look at this, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. You need to be highly motivated as you live your Christian life. If you are apathetic, you have unplugged your sanctification. If you are lukewarm, you have neutered your growth in grace. You must be highly motivated as you live your Christian life. And what is it that lights a fire under you and becomes a fire in your bones and becomes a fire in your soul? And Paul tells us here, it is the mercies of God. And if that doesn't light you up, you have never come to receive the mercies of God. Sanctification does not belong to Stoics. It belongs to people who have fuel in the tank of their soul, and it's been ignited by the mercies of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you are enthusiastic. Now, the word enthusiasm, it comes from two Greek words, in theos, in God. And all true enthusiasm and motivation and excitement of soul is found in God. If God doesn't light you up, if God doesn't excite you, you are spiritually dead in your trespasses and in your sins. So he says, I urge you, not just I teach you, not just I instruct you, I'm pleading with you. I beseech you. I implore you, I appeal to you in a compelling way. Paul never takes a take-it-or-leave-it attitude with his readers. 
I'm just going to toss this out here, and if you want it, good. If you don't want it, good. That's on you. My role is just to feed you data and just feed you information, and you sort it out for yourself. No, that's not the way a preacher talks. That's not the way an evangelist talks. That's not the way a real theologian talks. No, he's after us. He's urging us. He's, he's pleading and entreating for us that, that we would live our Christian lives at the highest level. So he says, I, I, I urge you, by the mercies of God, that that word mercies represents all of the saving grace of God. From eternity past to eternity future, every link in the chain of the order salutis, the order of salvation that He has just walked us through in the first 11 chapters of Romans, the mercies of God, He is saying, I want you to think deeply about the mercies of God that have been lavished upon you. There has been a deluge of saving grace, that the bottom has fallen out and it has come down cascading upon your life. You are literally drowning in an ocean of saving grace. You need to consider where you once were when God found you. You you need to consider what God has done in your life. You need to consider what you have become You need to consider how God has changed your life. You need to think about where you are now headed in your future. That is the mercies of God that have been, have been, have flooded your soul and and your life, and that should motivate you to no longer live just a a mediocre, mundane life, you should be sprinting to the finish line with all the strength that God will give you in the pursuit of holiness. How motivated are you right now to become as much like the Lord Jesus Christ as you can possibly be? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice? You must be motivated. Now, third, the presentation. This is what we must do. This is the action step to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is addressed to brethren, we see earlier in the verse, meaning to every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've already said in the introduction, we must be coming before the throne of grace again and again and again and again and presenting our lives, our our, our bodies. And when he says our bodies here, it is a a metaphorical expression, it's an an analogy of your entire being, of of your entire life. 
being presented to God. You, you need to present your mind to God, what you think. You need to present your eyes to God, what you look at and what you see. You need to present your ears to God, what you listen to. You need to present your mouth to God, what you say and what you sing and what you speak. You need to present your hands to God, what you do and what you're involved in. You need to present your feet to God, where you go. You've got to present your entire body from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, every inch and every, every ounce of you on the altar presented to God. And you cannot leave some part of your life off the altar, and this is my little part of my life. I have this little back closet where I can just do what I want to do, but the rest of me is presented to God. No, it's all or nothing. You need to get it all on the altar. You need to get your entire body on the altar and present it to God and take your hands off of your own life and just push it across the altar in front of God and say, God, here is my life. And it is to be a living sacrifice, which is to say, you and I must be living for God. We've been made alive to God. That's the doctrine of regeneration. We've been raised from spiritual death and from the grave of sin to now live for God with a single-mindedness. It is the priority of our lives. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why would dying be gain? Because I go be with Christ. My, my whole life is Christ. And then he says, a holy sacrifice. As was pointed out, last night by Dr. Pennington, a holy sacrifice has many different layers of meaning here, carries the idea of being set apart for a special purpose. In the Old Testament, even prostitutes were kadosh, set apart for a special occupation. It can be good, it can be evil, but the point is you are set apart to something. And here, because it's a living sacrifice to live for God, it must be a holy sacrifice that everything about your life is for God. I heard the story years ago of the Armour Empire in Chicago, the meatpacking company. Mr. Armour was one of the most wealthy men in the United States at a time back when you could have a monopoly. He all but owned Chicago. He got on a plane one day and was flying to the West Coast, and there was a young businessman in his 20s sat next to him on the plane. He didn't know this was the Mr. Arthur, or Armour. And so, Mr. Armour struck up a conversation with him, 
And in a short time, the young man said, and so, Mr. Armour, what do you do for a living? He said, my job is to tell people about Jesus Christ. I just pack a little meat on the side. Your job is to live for God and to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And you just happen to teach school on the side. You just happen to be a nurse on the side. You you just happen to be a physician or an accountant or an engineer on the side, but that's not really your job. That's just what pays the bills for your real job, which is to live for God and to live for the glory of God and to expand the, the kingdom of God. And it's only a living and holy sacrifice, he says, notice the next words, are acceptable to God. That means well-pleasing. And anything less than a complete presentation of your whole being is entirely unacceptable to God. And it is entirely displeasing to God. We need to think long and hard about this that what God is requiring of us, we must be all in with Him. We can't have little side things going on. There cannot be any part of our Christian lives that are held back from God. We can't have one foot on the altar and one foot in the world. We've got to be all in with God. So I need to ask you this question, are you there? As you would audit your life this afternoon, is that where you are with God? Presenting your life as a living and holy sacrifice to God, that's necessary in order to grow in personal holiness. Half in, half out will stagnate your Christian growth. Fourth, there's the calculation. Paul says we need to give careful thought to this, as shocking as it may sound to some. He says, which is your spiritual service of worship. This word spiritual is difficult to translate. It's a Greek word. I'm going to pronounce it only because you're going to hear the English word in it, logikos, logical, logic, logarithms. To present your body as a living and holy sacrifice to God is the only rational way for you to live your life. It is the only reasonable way for you to live your life. What Paul is saying, he's saying, do the math on this. Add this up. Add up 
what you have given up and add up what you have gained. You, you have given up sin and guilt and, and everything that would damn your life. And you have gained forgiveness and righteousness and the Holy Spirit and the death to the old life and been raised to a, a, a new life. You need to calculate assets and liabilities. You, you need to have a spreadsheet for your life. And on one side, you need to list all of the assets that you have gained in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the fullness of the salvation that you have received, including Christ himself now indwelling you. And then you need to have the debit column over here and everything that you gave up at the moment of your conversion and anyone who has any rational, spirit-led thinking capacity clearly sees the only logical way for me to live my Christian life is to live at full tilt for the glory of God in Christ. It would be completely irrational for me to hold back any part of my life. It doesn't make sense. to be half committed with side agendas and competing priorities and secret compartments, such as nonsensical. Yet we need to be reminded of this. We need to cut loose of everything that would hold us back. When the athlete runs the race to win, in Hebrews chapter 12, he likens progress in the Christian life to, to running a race. And, and what does he say? Since let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. We carry too much baggage. We're, we're trying to run a race and win the crown, and we're carrying an overcoat, an umbrella, a suitcase, a briefcase. We, we've, we've got boots on. No wonder we can't run as fast as we ought to. The writer of Hebrews says, you've, you've got to let it go if you're going to run swiftly to win the race. To live holding back any part of your Christian life makes you a walking contradiction in terms. What needs to be let go in your life? What's, what, what is, it's like trying to drive the car with the emergency brake on. I mean, I mean what's slowing you down? What, what's holding you back? What is keeping you from being able to accelerate with maximum speed in your pursuit of holiness and godliness? Whatever that is, it needs to be let go. Fifth, the insulation. The beginning of verse 2, he says, and do not be conformed 
to this world. We live in the world, though we're not of the world. We're not to be isolated from the world. We are to be insulated from the world. By way of analogy, our boat is to be in the water. There's just not to be any water in the boat. He says, do not be conformed. It's a compound word, and it means do not be squeezed into the mold of. Do not be, become recast uh, according to a different pattern. Do not be pressed into the shape of this world. When he says this world, he's referring to this evil age. The world's thinking, the world's values, the world's agenda, the world's perspective, the world's mindset. You, you, you are going to have to put up a firewall around you and not allow the world to come in and to be able to reconfigure you into its thinking patterns and its priorities. That would include secular humanism. That would include godless ideologies. That would include religious superstitions. We must resist every seductive lure that would pull us back into this godless world system. The world of politics is evil. The world of athletics, the world of entertainment, the world of music. Everywhere you look, every little component of this evil world system, Satan is the god of this age. He is the prince of this world. He, he has the whole world in his hand. 1 John 5 and, and verse 19. Tom, are you preaching through 1 John right now? You finished it? Okay, because every re- cross-reference last night was from 1 John, so I, <laughs> I thought you should have just preached 1 John last night. <laughs> yeah, 1 John 5, 19. The whole world, the whole world, the whole stinking system, lies in the power of the evil one, under the sovereignty of God, but nevertheless, the evil one is exerting a a real and lethal influence over this entire world system. And if you and I are to progress in holiness and godliness then we must resist with all of the might that the Holy Spirit will give to us and all of the power that would come from the infusion of the Word of God into our lives. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world. You know what that means? Do not love the world. nor the things 
in the world. There's nothing wrong with having things. What's wrong is for things to have you. If anyone loves the world, if anyone lives for the world, if anyone lusts for the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, that rather sums it up. The lust of the flesh, meaning the cravings of evil hearts, the lust of the eyes, causing desire for more, and the boastful pride of life, the arrogance of self-exaltation, is not from the Father. The world is passing away. You know why it's passing away? Because it's self-destructing. It's imploding. And also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. <laughs> James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses. Sounds like Paul Washer. <laughs> you adulteresses. Paul's a close personal friend. In fact, he called me from the hospital his last operation, as they're wheeling him out of the operating table, he calls me on his way to his waiting room, just trying to absolve my guilt from what I said. (laughs) It's not working yet. (laughs) Okay. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world And that includes going to homosexual weddings with a gift. It's hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself, ready for the punchline, an enemy of God. No, we must insulate ourselves from all of the the, the value system, the temptations, the lures, the seductions that are all around us, if we are to be growing in personal holiness and in godliness. An old-fashioned word, separation. Number six, the transformation. He says, but be trans- transformed by the renewing of your mind. This word transformed means to be radically and dramatically changed from the inside out. In other words, not just painting the Titanic on the outside as it's sinking, but for there for to be this inward transformation at the deepest level of our existence, at the very epicenter of our soul, at the very depth of our being, we we must be transformed into holiness, Christ-likeness. It's progressive. It's lifelong. As we said in the Q&A, it's demanding. It is slow progress at times. And the way that this transformation from the inside out takes place, this metamorphosis, if you will, 
is by the renewing of your mind. Everything begins in the Christian life with your mind. Everything begins with your mind. The battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. And then it goes to the affections and the desires. And then it comes out with the will. The will is simply the handmaiden of the affections. That was, that was Jonathan Edwards' whole argument in religious affections, that the will only chooses what it desires to choose. Well, what's influencing the affections? It's the mind. If you renew the mind, you will be reorienting your affections, which will redirect your will. So you've got to trace the the river upstream to the point of origin to the mind. R.C. Sproul's radio ministry is called Renewing Your Mind. He put his finger on the live nerve in the Christian life. You need to be renewing your thoughts, your beliefs, your convictions, your worldview, your perspective, your assessments of, of things. Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. A transformed life begins with a transformed mind. I quoted it during the Q&A, but hear it again, Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is the supernatural power of God unleashed within us by the Holy Spirit as the word of God gains entrance into our heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. This is how we renew our mind how we are given the mind of Christ. And so this is a challenge for us, is it not? To be in the Word of God. That's how we have the mind of Christ. We must read it. We must study it. We must hear it preached. We must meditate upon it. We must memorize it. We must apply it. We must live it. It's the Word of God. John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them by your Word. It's the instrument in the hand of the Holy Spirit to bring about our conformity to Christ's likeness. Finally, the realization at the end of verse 2. So, so what is the result of everything we just walked through? What, what is the outcome? What does this lead to? Where does this take you? He says in the middle of verse 2, so that, in other words, here's the bottom line, you may prove what the will of God is. Prove means to test and to try and come to know by personal experience. It's the result of a transformed mind is that you may prove, you may experience, you may come to see realized in your life 
what the will of God is. The will of God is His chosen path for your life. It's what you would choose for yourself if you were only as wise as God. He knows best. All of His ways are perfect. And then He gives the distinguishing marks of the will of God, that which is good, it's beautiful, it's it's so good and acceptable, meaning it's well-pleasing. It's the same word that was used in verse 1, that acceptable to God, our spiritual service of worship. Now, here it's used in relationship to us, that the will of God is acceptable and well-pleasing to us and perfect. You cannot improve on perfect. The idea is really complete. It's whole. It's not lacking in any respect or area in your life. In other words, it's a comprehensive will that includes the entirety of every aspect of your life. There's no part of your life to be lived outside of the will of God. And so, the question, is your life on the altar this moment? And if not, why not? Is your life a living and holy sacrifice that is presented to God? Are you all in with God? Is there any hesitation with any part of your life that would be held back? Is there any part of your life that is not fully presented to God? It's been well said, the problem with a living sacrifice is that from time to time they crawl off of the altar. We've got to stay on the altar. We must stay presented to God. Your mind, your eyes, your ears, your heart, your hands, your feet. Each one of those body parts represents a different aspect of your Christian life. It doesn't take much of a man or a woman to be a Christian. It just takes all there is of them. And it will take all of you being presented on the altar to God, hands off, given to God, for God to take and to mold you and to fashion you and to shape you, to prune you, to cultivate you into the person that He desires you to be. And the person He desires you to be is to be like Christ. In Florence, Italy... The Renaissance city is that statue of David. 
I read recently a whole chapter about the quarrying of the marble, the difficulty in getting it out of the mountains and down to Florence, and the difficulty for Michelangelo, the genius, to carve this statue of David that looks so lifelike. I've seen his Moses in Rome, and it's so lifelike that when Michelangelo finished Moses, he went up to the statue and tapped it and said, speak. It's so real looking. Well, the statue of David is 10 times, times 10,000 more realistic than even the Moses. The rippling of the the veins in the neck, the muscles, the hair, the eyes. I asked Michelangelo, how'd you do it? How did you carve this perfect statue of David out of a block of marble? Michelangelo said it was very simple and very easy. I just chiseled away everything that did not look like David. The result is David. God is chiseling in all of our lives everything that does not look like Jesus Christ. Attitudes, priorities, thought patterns. And it's a progressive growth in grace But you and I are becoming more like Christ as our Christian lives are unfolding. But to accelerate this, we need to be presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. May you do so today. May you not wait any longer to do this. May you consciously, intentionally, purposefully, today, give your life in the midst of your Christian life entirely to God, a living and holy sacrifice. Father, thank you for this passage. It challenges the socks off of us. It says so much in such few words. The imagery is potent, it's powerful. As we can see the priest bringing a sacrifice, putting it on the altar after having examined the sacrifice, that it would be one without defect, without blemishes and without imperfections. Even so, we need to inspect our lives today. Father, help us do this. Reveal in us any hurtful way, as David says. Show us how to present our lives without moral blemish, without defects, without having been squeezed into the mold of the world, without our minds lingering in 
and not being renewed as they should be. So Father, take our lives and form us even more into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of From the Pulpit. If this was edifying to your Christian walk or if perhaps you have committed your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time, please leave a review wherever you listen to this. If you want to connect with me on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at One Passion Ministries. If you want to join me live as I travel and preach. Uh, My speaking schedule can be found at onepassion.org. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of From the Pulpit. May the Lord greatly bless your walk with Him. Thank you for joining us.